So we finished for the time being with the close application of mindfulness to the mind. We go through Sunday Davis presentations and the guided Bodhisattva way of life and the companion of practices. And since we have now less, a little bit less than one week, let's just keep on moving. Move on to the fourth of the four applications of mindfulness, and that is to phenomena. And we'll return to Shantideva's text, the, the first one, the Bodhisattva, and get to the other one a little bit. Okay? So this is, you can see some real philosophy here. This is hardball philosophy. Hope you enjoy it. Enjoy it. It's really quite extraordinary, extremely concise. Shantideva's root verses are, again, almost koanic. That is so concise. Um, they're almost like koans. But what I'm including this time is His Holiness' commentary, which I'm going to read. And these were actually teachings he gave. I just checked just a few minutes ago. Uh, this commentary comes from teachings he gave to a group of about, about a thousand Tibetans or so, and just a small handful of Westerners, given in Rikon, Switzerland, in 1979, during his first visit to Europe, or to the West to teach. So he visited Switzerland and Greece, and then off to a much more extensive tour in the United States. And so Jeffrey Hopkins was, uh, was one of my mentors, one of my Tibetan teachers, a very dear friend, senior scholar, elder scholar. Uh, he translated for his holiness throughout the entire Euro uh, American tour, and I had the privilege of interpreting for him in Switzerland and in Greece, these teachings that he gave on the Bodhisattva in Rikon, in northern Switzerland, that was with no interpretation, no, tra no translation, it was just straight Tibetan. I attended those teachings, and I had great privilege. And then some years later, when I was uh, doing my undergraduate work at Amherst, part of my thesis was translating from the Sanskrit and Tibetan, this wisdom chapter. And then I decided also I had recordings of His Holiness's oral teachings, so I translated those. It was quite challenging and very, very rewarding. Jeffrey Hopkins, again, very dear and revered teacher of mine. Uh, he made a comment years ago, probably about 40 years ago, to me, uh, when he was teaching me Tibetan grammar, and I could not find anybody on the planet better, literally, than Jeffrey Hopkins <coughs> teaching Tibetan grammar. He's absolutely outstanding. But he said, if you really want to understand the text well, translate. And it turns out to be true. One major reason I've translated so many texts. So, the same way, of course, is verse 105, which I read earlier. But we'll find, you, you might have been a little bit surprised if you were looking at, if you have your version, whether online or whether you have it written. Um, where's the close application of mindfulness to phenomena? And verse 105, to reiterate, because I have read it before, uh, he's referring to mind. This is a close application of mindfulness to the mind. If it, the mind, arises after the object of cognition, so independence upon it and after it, then from what would cognition arise? Uh, so I won't, I've already commented on that. So that is a question, from what would it arise? And of course you don't find anything from which it really arises. That's the first half of verse 105, 105a. And then here's 105b, here's the second line in this verse. In this way, it is ascertained that no phenomenon comes into existence. He was focusing everything on the mind, and then suddenly, oh, by the way, everything else. And it's quite interesting. 
And again, this, if one, if one is sloppy, or one just gets tired, you know, you're, you're venturing into this very challenging line of reasoning, mode of inquiry, which is a combination, as I think you know now, of rational, empiric, rational and experiential. You're bringing in reasoning that you really better be probing into your own experience, otherwise it's just a head trick. I frankly just do not believe that it really strikes the target of mental afflictions if you keep it purely on a conceptual level and don't bring it into your own experience. Maybe it will hit somebody else's mental affliction, but it won't hit yours because, you know, you're not in the same auditorium. And so, said, in this way it is ascertained that phenomenon, no phenomenon comes into existence. So I was about to say, if one just gets tired, or maybe lazy, or just says, oh, well, this holiness must know what he's talking about. Or Shantideva is so wise, he's quoted so often, he must be true. And if you just kind of slide in, then you don't get it. No, no, but I believe, I believe, I really believe, no, no, I, I believe all phenomena are, what did they say, inherently? Uh, devoid, yeah, that, uh, devoid of inherently, whatever he said, that's what I believe. <laughs> Lots of luck with that. You know, it's not going to work. This has to draw forth every ounce of your intelligence. You can't hold any in reserve and say, well, I don't want to investigate too hard, otherwise I might come to the conclusion that Shantideva is wrong, and then I'll be very unhappy. It calls on your best, your best shot. So as a hypothesis, a working hypothesis, if it turns out to be true, that our very perception of reality, Whatever it is, other people, our minds, galaxies, elementary particles, if it turns out that our very perception of reality, our very awareness of it, itself has no inherent nature, is devoid of an intrinsic identity of its own, then it immediately follows that whatever you perceive cannot be any more real than your perception of it. If your perception has only a nominal existence, only a conventional existence, that does not exist by its own intrinsic nature, then nothing that you apprehend will exist by its own intrinsic nature. So I'll leave it there. That's, it's just leaving it there. It's not saying, okay, now I've said it, now believe. It's there and now reflect upon. It's a very deep statement. And as I was reflecting on it about myself this afternoon, I was thinking, because I do love skirting around among different disciplines, uh, this really quite, quite extraordinary cosmologist, astrophysicist at Stanford, the Russian physicist by the name of Andrei, Andrei Linde. And he made the comment, when he's questioning, maybe, maybe scientists should start taking consciousness more seriously and considering maybe that it's not just a derivative or a function of matter, maybe it's one of the, the fundamental features of the entire universe and should be taken seriously in its own right. He said, after all, what we know primarily is our own perceptions. And out of our perceptions comes our perception of matter, space, time, energy, anything else. But it's your perceptions that are primary. And everything else is something that, oh, you perceive it. If that which is primary is empty of inherent nature, then how could it possibly be the case that what you're apprehending is somehow more real than your apprehension of it? To my mind, it doesn't make any sense. And that's exactly what Shantideva is suggesting here. That by ascertaining the emptiness of your own awareness. In this way, it is ascertained that you should come to a certainty that no phenomenon comes into existence. If your own cognition, your own awareness of red, of people, planets, particles, space, time, matter, society, justice, beauty, 
any, if your own awareness of whatever it may be doesn't really come into existence by its own inherent nature, truly come into existence, then no object that you apprehend can truly come into existence either. So that's his statement. But then, that's the end of the discussion. He just says it in one line. That's that. I'm finished. Tea time. <laughs> but a little bit, what? What? A little bit more? No, that's it. So it reminds me again the statement from the Mahmudra division, specifically Kama Chakne. Do you remember the analogy? The tree that you want from which you want to get dry firewood? If you cut the one taproot, if you realize the emptiness of your own mind, then the ripple effect will go out and you will quite rapidly see that if that's the case, then no phenomenon that you apprehend with your mind can possibly be inherently existent. So that by cutting the taproot, the whole tree of delusion dries up, burning. So I was going to stop there, because that's the end of the formal discussion of the four applications of mindfulness. But then I looked again, I thought, no, there's a little bit of addendum here. And it's what's called refutation of objections. And I thought, this is really sharp, and this is where I want to bring in His Holiness explicitly and simply read his commentary, because the verses here are really like koans. So these are objections that, Sh that Shantideva, one can imagine their objections arising in his own mind. And then, it's on his thinking cap, okay, how would I respond to that? So what we have here is where there's, there's a middle way here, and it's very slender. Because metaphysical realism, the notion that, hey, there's a real world out there, that kind of, that's just common sense. And it's common sense that almost all scientists, barring a few people like Stephen Hawking, John Wheeler, and some others, but almost all of science, and I think all of the cognitive science, psychology and neuroscience, virtually all of that, virtually no exceptions, they're assuming there's a real brain, there's a real body, there's a real world out there made of mass, energy, space, time, and... and that's what we're mapping. That's what we're representing with our scientific theories. That's what we're really investigating. And it's common sense, right? And that's exactly the common sense that's being refuted. It's refuting the very existence of some inherently existent objective world or some inherently existent subjective awareness of it. And saying that no phenomenon exists by its own nature, phenomena come into existence independence upon or by the power of verbal and or conceptual designation, imputation, saying it so, thinking it so. So if one is coming from metaphysical realism, and I think this objection is coming exactly from that, I would suggest it's coming from the Sartrantic view, which is like classical physics. It is, again, I said before, Sartrantic is to Buddhist philosophy what classical physics is to physics. I would say it's a very strong parallel. Then from, from the Sartrantic, and they say, what you said just make you majanikas. You, Shantideva, what you said just doesn't make sense. And that is, you're saying that phenomena exist only because we conceptually designate them. Not, they're not already there, there. This is so problematic, I hardly even know where to start. And that's what the Theravadans would say. They call, the Theravadans call the majamaka, they call it shunyavan, advocates of nihilism. You're saying, with respect to emptiness, the reality of suffering doesn't exist, the source doesn't exist, cessation doesn't exist. 
Well, thanks a million. You've just demolished all of the Buddha's teachings. You're nihilists. You've gone too far. You've gone way too far. Hello, come back to reality. So what's his objection? If conventional truth does not exist, and that's what he's been saying, the body doesn't exist, if you read it literally, body doesn't exist, feelings don't exist, mind doesn't exist, and then phenomena are apprehended not to come into existence. Or does it exist, exist literally? No phenomenon comes into existence. Wow. So if conventional truth does not exist, then how can there be two truths? You just knocked out one of them. You just said it doesn't exist. And I would have just had Nirvana hanging out by itself. This is the objection. If it does exist due to another conventional truth, then how can there be a liberated sentient being? Okay? So, clearly, that's Koanish. Let's now read what his own thesis is. And he's really clear. So, here's his own and his commentary. The, ob the objection, first of all, you centrist, you Majanikas, claim that no imputed object is found under analysis and that emptiness itself does not exist. It's not really there. Upon seeking imputed objects, body, feelings, mind, phenomena, you conclude that there is no form, sound, smell, taste, tactile object, nor mental object, and that there is no truth of suffering, truth of the source of suffering, truth of the sensation, or truth of the path. You say that everything does not exist. You seem to maintain, continues the objection, you seem to maintain that all conventional realities that are involved in causal relationships are mere apparitions appearing to deluded minds since they have no intrinsic existence. But if they're not intrinsically existing, they do not exist at all. And that's the, that's the position of metaphysics. It's either really there or it's not. But if you're saying it's really not there, then frankly it's not there at all. To be there is to be really there. If it's not really there, you're out. You know, like that. Or you're out. He is the baseball mudra. That's what it ends. It makes sense. If they're not intrinsically existent, they do not exist at all. In that case, how can there be two truths? This is his whole Ultimate truth will be out of the question, for it must be established on the basis of something that does exist. Something that exists. And we've seen this. I mentioned this with respect to the mind. If you want to realize the ultimate nature of the mind, empty nature of the mind, first you must ascertain the mind. Otherwise, what's the point? I mean, Toss up something fuzzy, you don't know whether it exists or not, and say, oh, now what is ultimate nature? It's a, it's a ridiculous strategy. So, for there to be an ultimate truth, there must be a conventional truth. Ultimate truth, in that case, how could there be two truths? Ultimate truth would be out of the question, for it must be established on the basis of something that exists. But if that basis does not exist, if that basis of imputation doesn't exist by its own nature, it has no ultimate nature. It's not there. Why? Because it's not really there. That's what it means to not be there. Not really there. You know? I get it. I believe. I understand. Thus, relative and ultimate truth could not be positive. Because you've just obliterated relative truth. And you can't have ultimate truth just hanging up all by itself. The opposition continues, if according to you everything that exists that is positive consists purely of apparitions appearing to confuse minds, like we're all psychopaths, we're all schizophrenics, we're all completely delusional, and that's the only nature of conventional reality, is of things appearing to crazy people, 
if that's what you're saying, and it really seems like you are, then nirvana would be impossible. Indeed, worldly judgments, good and bad, would not hold up. I mean, everybody's crazy, so good and bad, whatever you say it is. Moreover, a cosmic primal substance, that's a prakriti, believed in what some Hindu schools, like the Samkhya, God as an all-powerful all creator of the universe, the three jewels of the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, would all have the same status. If one of them exists, they all exist. And that is, if this is just a free-fall, whatever you think, that's what exists, then anything, creator God, no creator God, you know, anything, because it's just you designated, it's a free-for-all. Who needs science? Who needs reason? Just, you have a delusional mind, whatever you cough up, almost whatever you vomit up, that's your reality. So, you see, they think they're good at here. Maybe that's just my projection. But if one of them exists, they all exist. For a confused mind, such a primal substance may exist, that's the prakriti. God may exist. The horns of a rabbit may exist, may also exist. To a mind that conceives of rabbit horns, they exist. Like, you know, me walking around thinking, hey, Napoleon. Oh, that's your reality, dude. Okay, well, swap. I respect what you say. If you think you're Napoleon, well, then it's your reality. So we're all just smoking dope and everybody's reality is as good as anybody else's reality. That's just really kind of whacking my geometry here. You're just, you're just demolishing everything. To a mind that can see the rabbit horns, they exist. In short, if you say that something exists simply because it seems to be real to a deluded mind, nothing could be denied existence. In other words, there's no such thing as mental, mental disease. There's no such thing as, as psychopathology, schizophrenia, psychosis. There's no such thing. That's just your reality. Yeah. This is all, by the way, direct translation from the soul. In that case, continue, continues the opposition. In that case, true and untrue, good and evil, conventionally existent and non-existent, all lose their meaning. One can no longer speak of false views, such as denying something which does exist and asserting something, asserting something that does, does not exist. Thus, by undermining the distinction between good and evil, there would be no liberation by means of correctly avoiding evil and adopting virtue. Moreover, liberation itself would be nothing more than an apparition of a deluded mind. It's a strong opposition from Satrantika. And I would say it doesn't say explicitly Satrantika. This is clearly within the Buddhist framework. And if someone says, this, Majamaka, this is dangerous stuff. This is demolishing the whole path and the very notion, any meaningful notion of liberation altogether. So Majamika is, how are you going to respond to that. That was a pretty tough critique. Here comes the verse, the root verses. And it's again like a koan, so be patient, we'll get to his holiness, everything will be complicated. One is an idea, one is an ideation, a concept of someone else's mind, and one does not exist by one's own conventional truth. To simply put, it's not make it up as you go. It's not whatever you say is true. After something has been ascertained, it exists. If not, it does not exist as a conventional reality either. Okay? Hard to pick, the, pick that one apart, but it's only this now does it. He says now, the objection is that if something is said to exist merely because it is conceived by a deluded mind and grasped onto true existence, it would not be able to render help nor inflict harm. It would simply be an illusion. Okay? So the summary. Now the response. Here's the uh, here's Shantideva's Majjhimika response. One cannot claim that something exists simply because it is conceived by a deluded mind. 
It's kind of a relief. Okay, so there is such a thing as psychosis. There is such a thing as false beliefs, like believing that one race is intrinsically better than another, and so on. So according to our centrist or Majimika system, that is not the criterion of conventional existence. And I hope you misunderstood this. When speaking of a conventional truth, its truth is determined not by objective reality, and that's what the metaphysical realist believes. It's out there really, and so how well your theory corresponds to what's out there absolutely, that's what determines how good your theory is. It's representation. He said, well, we're not going there. You do, we're not. But we're also not a bunch of smoke-doping hippies that just say whatever is your reality. So it's something in between. Slender way, so reminiscent of Billy Putnam's. We'll get to this, but that's just the summers of my little private conversation. She studied Hillary Putnam. Back to Narajan and his holiness. So, in speaking of the conventional truth, its truth is not is determined not by objective reality, but by the mind. Objective reality cannot be the criterion for truth, for truth is of the mind. What springs to mind here? Anton Simon. He said, what we have are measurements, what we have are information derived from our measurements. That's what we scientists have. And frankly, he's speaking for all scientists. He's speaking as a brilliant mind in the field of experimental quantum physics. He may as well be speaking for neuroscience, geology, or anything else. What we know, what we have, are our measurements, the information we derive from making measurements, observations, and experiments. That's it. Right? And so, we have to pause it. That's it. Now, with these measurements, the appearances, the information we have, how does this correspond to some reality that exists independently of our systems of measurement, independently of all the information we have, independently of all appearances? He said, there's no way to answer that question. It's not a meaningful question. Therefore, to think that there's some objective reality out there, independent of all systems of measurement, all appearances and all information, and we're going to try to judge the validity of our theories in terms of how well it corresponds to that objective reality. This is a fool's errand. It's not meaningful. You'll never be able to refute or corroborate anything. So give it a rest. Metaphysical realism is delusional. That you can never test by that criteria. It's an inside job. You're always making measurements. You're getting appearances, information, and making measurements. But you never get a leap out of that and say, yeah, yeah, from God's perspective. No can do. No can do. So that's exactly what, quite interesting, that's exactly what His Holiness is saying here. In 1979. So objective reality cannot be objective as it exists independently of our system measurement, appearances, information cannot be the criterion for truth, determining whether your theory is true or not. For truth is of the mind. So don't look there, look back here. And Anton Seidinger says, this is why you must then bring back together ontology and epistemology. Ontology is the knowledge of what is. Epistemology is the knowledge of how do we know. You can't separate. And that was done artificially. I think that you somehow speak of, of what's really there. Oh, but, but that has nothing to do with our, our way of knowing, because it's really, really there. Totally phony, fool's errand, red herring, false, false lead, don't go there. Doesn't work, never has. So, find some other criterion for truth. His Holiness said, okay, it's back to the mind. Truth is of the mind. He continues, the conventional truths of the mind can be established 
conventional truths of the mind can be established only by the confusion of grasping onto true existence. So when one speaks of, so let's just let him unpack that statement, it's not clear. When one speaks of conventional truth, that is true for the mind that grasps onto true existence. So briefly coming back to the, to the non-lucid dream. Within the non-lucid dream, you meet with people. So let's imagine this is a non-lucid dream. And I'm looking around and say, is, uh, is Betty Rose here? And within the dream, then Marcy says, yeah, I'm dead. why do you see She's right over there. And so we're all deluded. We're all deluded within the non-lucid dream, because we don't know we're dreaming. At least I know I'm deluded. But within that context, well, that's, that's a true statement. Taking the, taking the place within the context of misapprehending the nature of reality you're experiencing. Namely, you don't know that it's a dream. So we continue. However, the mind that establishes conventional reality must not be deluded. Must not be deluded. In other words, you cannot be a psychotic. You cannot be mistaken. It must be verified. It must. It may be, now this is subtle, it may be deluded with, with regard to its apparent object, but it not, must not be mistaken with regard to its chief object. Okay, this is non and jugular. non So, but it's, it's not that difficult to find. That is, now let's take the example of a, of a lucid dream. A lucid dream. So within the midst of the lucid dream, you're looking around, and all the appearances, so I see Mike over there in my lucid dream, and, and if Martin asked me, Mike, uh, Alan, is Mike here? He said, yes, he's right over there. Within the context of this dream, which now I recognize to be a dream, I'm looking at the appearance of Mike. And Mike absolutely appears to be over there. That's how he appears. He's over there. And I walk over and touch him on the shoulder, and my gamma was right. That's how the appearances are. The appearance that he's really over there. That's what he looks like. And then I walk over, and yes, I touch him on the shoulder, and tackle sensations arise. It seems that way. And so in that way, then I'm deluded with respect to appearances. Because that, mis that appearance is misleading. And I can't help it. I keep on seeing whenever I look at it. That's how things appear. And I'm getting it wrong. It is, they're misleading me. It's like lying to me. But within the context of this lucid dream, if I, if Martin asks, is, is Mike here or not? I say, yes, he's right over there. Mike is the person that he's referring to. Who's the referent of the word Mike? That person over there. And so within this context, is Mike there? Yes, I'm not mistaken him for Paul. A little bit similar. Not very much, a little bit. So, but I'm not mistaken. So Paul is the, the chief object, the reference of the word, but how he appears is misleading. So you may be mistaken with respect to how things appear, but if you are mistaken with respect to the chief object, like mistaking Paul for Mike or vice versa, then you're wrong. Then, you're, then, then you really did get wrong. Okay? So... When establishing our own prasangika conventional reality, a cosmic primal substance, the prakriti, and God is an all-powerful creator, do not exist even conventionally. This is our view. They don't exist at all. Likewise, in terms of other Buddhist views, with reference to other Buddhist views, we prasangika do not grant even conventional existence to the foundation consciousness, that's the Alaya Vijnana, as advocated by the Chittamatari. Prasangika is refuted. Okay. Don't refute Dzogchen. 
We refute totally the foundation consciousness or Adha We refute totally self cognition, Svasambedana or Ramdikindana. Again, an element of the Chittamatra that are posited by the idealist or Chittamatra system. We say they're completely wrong. They got it wrong. There's no truth to what they say with respect to those two entities. They're like phlogiston or caloric things that were believed in by some, some scientists, and then we're recognized, oh, that has no truth whatsoever. Or a better example is the ether. The ether, you recall, I'm quoting uh, Lord Kelvin, saying, here's one thing we're absolutely certain of. If there's anything we're certain of, it's the true and real existence of the ether. And then, just a matter of several years later, ether doesn't exist at all. So now, I don't think there's a physicist alive who believes in the kind of ether that Lord Kelvin thought was absolutely certain because the whole propagation of light didn't make any sense without it, unless you knew relativity there. In which case, that wasn't invented when you made that statement. So there it is. We regard things like jugs, jugs like a pot, as conventionally existent. Both entities and non-entities are mere conceptual designations. The things that do exist and don't exist. Rabbit's horns, unicorns, phlogiston, ether, etc., and flowers and dirt, and so forth, they are both, they are mere conceptual designation, and neither exists from its own side. In that sense, they are alike. But there is a distinction as to whether or not they are conventionally able to render help or inflict harm, and, and whether or not they are established by a very fine cognition. Very dense philosophy. The issue of whether they can, this is now, he brings in a pragmatic Part of all philosophy is it now brings in that not only are you perceiving correctly or not, but that which you're holding to be true, to be existent, does it do anything? He says specifically, since all of this is couched within the Four Noble Truths, are they able, able to help or inflict harm? It's a pragmatic criteria. If you think that something exists, and it's one of these conditioned phenomena that arises independent upon the cause of conditions, then does it have any causal efficacy? Does it do anything? Does it influence anything? Does it have the potential to be helpful or harmful? Right? If it doesn't at all, then you might want to look at that again. It may be purely a figment of your imagination, having no existence apart from just fanciful thought. So there's a pragmatic criteria. Does it do anything? It's William James' pragmatism. Oh, Charles Peirce's pragmatism. Well, William James built on that. So the criteria of something existent being, does it do anything? Does it have, does it have any, yeah, is it pragmatic? So that's one point. There is a distinction as to whether or not they are conventionally able to render help or inflict harm. It's one point, pragmatic. And whether or not they are established by a verifying cognition. Oh, there's the, where, there's where they, the heat comes in, the heavy. Pramana, verifying cognition. And that is, if you ascertain something as being existent, then you must then be self-reflective. And that is, how did I apprehend it? Now, this really calls for introspection. How did I apprehend it? If you're a scientist, and you've just measured neutrinos, neutrinos traveling a little bit faster than the speed of light, oh, that's going to be revolutionary. You'll win a Nobel Prize if that's true. But how did you come to that conclusion? What was your mode of knowledge? And the scientists will look at their two things. 
the experimental apparatus, the measurement system, but also, since mathematics is heavily involved, what's your data analysis? What's your data collection? What's your data, data analysis? That's the way your dependence on those two, you're drawing conclusions. If either one of those two is faulty, if it's not a valid mode of apprehension, either you just got bad data, because you're picking up artifacts of your system, or your data analysis was just off. If either one of those, then whatever you conclude doesn't count. Now that's science. It's really good science. And it's exactly how the subsequent scientific inquiry, scrutinizing that claim, came to the conclusion, you're wrong. You did not have verifying cognition. I think it was in the data analysis, if I remember correctly. Do you remember? Or collection. Measurement hardware. The measurement hardware, so it's data collection itself. If that's true, then after, after that matters. So their analysis is good, but what they were analyzing was not, it was an artifact, rather than simply really picking up something from nature. So there it is, either your perception or your way of making sense of it, but either one of those is off, and it's not valid cognition. As that is true in particle physics, it's true everywhere else. Everywhere else. Studying the hippocampus, studying your girlfriend, studying plants, anything. Are you picking up clear data, and are you understanding it in a valid way? And that means you must check your system. This is where, pardon me for saying shamat is so important, it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient. Just shamat, it doesn't mean, oh good, I've achieved shamat, and now whatever I see will be infallible. Uh-uh. But if you don't have shamat, uh-oh. Because you can have just so much junk. So many artifacts of the system. It's just like an ongoing vomit machine. <laughs> so much rumination. How can you clear out all the junk when it's just kind of spewing vomit all over reality? I'm sure there's reality here somewhere. Just let me, let me get the windshield wipers out. I'm sure it's got to be here somewhere. So your data collection is going to really suck. If you don't have a black, stable, and clear mind. But then you must have more of that. And boy, the glucans are really strong in this. Rightly so. Shamat is not enough. Got to have intelligence. You should really study. You should learn what is valid cognition, pramana, pramana by way of perception, pramana by way of inference. That's why they spend so many hours clapping their hands in debate, data analysis. That's screwy. Then doesn't matter how good your shaman is. The way you're making sense of it doesn't pass muster. Powerful stuff. I, I think that, to my mind, this is just simply spectacular. And the fact that it's all put right into practice, oh, then count me in. So that cognition is indeed diluted, insofar it is diluted with respect to the appearance of true existence. So that's looking over there at Mike within the dream, and he certainly appears to be there from his own side. Look, I'm deluded on that point. Deluded on it. And that's true. To overcome that delusion, you have to overcome shiji deba, cognitive obscuration, which you start purifying only on the eighth domain. Until then, you may know reality, but still the appearances will lie to you. So we're going to be lying for a long time. And that's why shaman is not enough. Because if you say, no, I saw it, I saw it, yeah, fine. What you saw was misleading, therefore not sufficient. You must bring in the jnana, you must bring in wisdom. And then that's the fusion of Shamadevipasha.
So that cognition is indeed deluded insofar as it's deluded with respect to the appearance of true existence. Yeah, it appears to be true existence. It's not. Therefore, it's deluded. But apart from that, there is a distinction between being mistaken or unmistaken with respect to its chief object. Might. Is he there or not? And that is what determines whether it is a verifying cognition. So the verifying cognition may still be deluded with respect to appearances, but get it right. Is that Michael over there? Yes, it is. Okay? So you're wrong about how he appears. Nevertheless, is he there or not? Yes, he is. And that's sufficient. That's enough to be a verifying cognition. So that criterion for conventional existence is the presence of a mind that is unmistaken with respect to its chief object, but it's actually apprehended. Whilst ascertaining emptiness, one does not establish the existence of other entities. He's talking about the non-conceptual direct realization of emptiness. When you're there, your conceptual designation apparatus is completely shut down. Therefore, from your perspective, no other phenomena arise. You're experiencing nirvana alone. Nirvana alone. Nirvana equals emptiness. That's all. Because from your perspective, within the center of your mind, there is no conceptual designation. Therefore, no phenomena appear at all. It's just ascertaining emptiness. But upon arising from such meditative equipoise, out of meditation. So you just realize emptiness as an audio, direct realization. When you come out of meditation, if something appears clearly to the mind, first point, appears clearly to the mind, oh, there's mind. If its conventional existence is not repudiated by any other conventional knowledge, and that is, does anybody disagree that that's mind? Anybody at all? Almost like in a wedding ceremony. Speak now forever, hold your peace. <laughs> Nobody's saying that's not mine. Okay? So so far, so good. First of all, it appears. Secondly, its conventional existence is not refuted by any other conventional knowledge. Two, if it is able to yield benefit or harm. I think so. I think so. <laughs> and if it is established by a verifying cognition, yeah, visually perceiving, that's him. If I hear, hear his voice, I'm sure it will sound a spitting image of Mike's voice. And so, yes, direct perception. If those are filled, then it exists. If not, it does not exist even conventionally. So, that's the Madhyamic response to the repudiation of the Madhyamic view from within Buddhism, such as the Satranic view. Okay? A pretty heavy duty. Let's continue. So I'm going to just spend one day. The two, now we go back to the root verse. The two, conception and the conceived. Okay? The conceptually designating mind, and that which is conceptually designated. The two. Now we've been there before, haven't we? The mind that is informed, that about which you're informed. Process of informing. He's taking subject and object here. The conceiving mind and that which is conceived. This is the, uh, this is, Ah, this is still the Majimika. The two, conception and the conceived, this is still Shantideva, are mutually dependent. Oh, we've been there before, so this is not familiar. Just as every analysis is expressed by referring to what is commonly known, that is, within a conceptual framework, a cognitive framework, where there is consensus. That's just a root verse. Now, what is holiness? Straight from the Solomon. Ready? It's short. Subjective conceptual cognition. Mind that conceives. And conceived objects, right, 
are mutually interdependent. Isn't it kind of a little bit comfortable now that you've heard that so many times from multiple perspectives? It, it makes sense, doesn't it? They're mutually interdependent. Take away one, the other one vanishes. Either one, which already indicates neither one is inherently real. Because if Mike were inherently real and I were inherently real, take, away, take, what, take, take me away, what's left? Mike! What's the big deal? But if two things are mutually interdependent, take white away one, the other one vanishes immediately, therefore it can't possibly be truly existing. That's what he was getting at. If the mind doesn't truly exist, then no object of the mind can possibly truly exist. So, subjective conceptual cognition and conceived objects are mutually interdependent. Action depends on an agent of action. So this is true not only for cognition, but he'll elaborate. Action depends on an agent of action, and the agent depends on action. For example, a tailor is identified on the basis of his or her activity of tailoring. And since there are tailors, the activity of tailoring occurs. Of course, if there were no tailoring, there would be no tailors. This is not to say that the agent and action are causally related. That one precedes the other. If they don't, you don't have first the tailoring and then the tailor comes afterwards. Or vice versa. Simultaneous, mutual, it's called They're mutually dependent, but they are mutually dependent. Take away one, the other one vanishes. Instantly. In order to establish the ultimate mode of existence of some entity, one must first determine that the entity in question exists. That was the point earlier. We want to understand the ultimate nature of mind, ascertain the mind, the conventional nature. On that basis, one inquires into its mode of existence. So that's a total refutation of that earlier objection from the, let's say, the subtronic. Okay? So here, nine is not completely exhausted. We go to a second objection. But if one analyzes by means of analysis that which is analyzed, in other words, you're inverting, inverting, inverting. If one analyzes by means of analysis that which is analyzed, then there is an infinite regress because that analysis can also be analyzed. And then, that which analyze that, you can analyze that, and analyze that, and then, well, and then there'll just be no end to it, infinite regress. So how long do you want to be in Majamaka? It looks like you get into an, an endless loop. Maybe we should just avoid that altogether. That's the obje objection. And so as Holiness uh, paraphrases this, again from the, the metaphysical realist perspective, you centrists or Majamakas first analyze something, some subject like a jump. Then you investigate the ultimate nature of the job. In this way, you enter into an infinite regress of analysis, because then you can investigate the ultimate nature of that, and the ultimate nature of that, and the ultimate of them. You never end. So what's the answer? The Majjavika response, Shantideva, when the object of analysis is analyzed, no basis for an analysis is left. You're finished. Since there is no basis, it does not arise, and that's called Nirvana. Okay, that's your koan. Here comes the Solanus comment. Upon analyzing a subject such as a jug, one ascertains the intrinsic emptiness of the jug. That's when you're applying this ontological analysis. So you've just realized the emptiness of the jug, emptiness of inheritance. That awareness apprehends the simple negation that is the mere absence of the true existence of that subject. So when you're realizing the emptiness of the jug, you're realizing the sheer absence of 
its intrinsic identity. Very familiar with the stuff. It cognizes only that emptiness. It apprehends no other entity. It does not identify this as opposed to that. It's just realizing emptiness. As long as that mode of cognition lasts, and that is this, this awareness of the emptiness of a jug, as long as that mode of cognition lasts, the subject or basis whose lack of true existence was investigated is not ascertained by the mind. Because when you penetrate the emptiness, you're not still holding in mind jug. When you penetrate the empty nature of your own mind, you're no longer apprehending your mind. Apprehending emptiness, which means you're apprehending nirvana. Upon establishing the lack of intrinsic existence of entities of form and soul, if one further proceeds to analyze that ultimate reality of the lack of intrinsic existence, that is, the emptiness of inherent nature of emptiness, one ascertains the lack of true existence of ultimate reality, the emptiness of emptiness, standard Nagarjuna. In this case, the subject of analysis is emptiness, that is, that which you are analyzing, is emptiness. And one ascertains the ultimate reality of the ultimate reality of forms and so on. Thus one speaks of the emptiness of emptiness. And that's it. There's no infinite, there is no infinite regress. The problem is a non-problem. Because, so there you are apprehending the emptiness of anything, a jump, a mind, an elementary particle, whatever you like. And so there's an awareness there, a knowing of the emptiness of that phenomenon, at which point you're no longer aware of the phenomenon, you're aware only of its empty nature. Now you may invert that awareness, that investigation, into your awareness of emptiness. And you see that it is itself empty. Your awareness is empty, emptiness is empty. There's no point to go further. Everything else, there's just no reason to go into it, just slip into any infinite regress. Because that's the end of the story. The jug is empty, your awareness is empty, emptiness is empty. Finito. Do anything more is just talking. It's not necessary. So in case you were brooding over the last couple of days, raising these objections in your mind, Shantideva and Mahan, Dalai Lama, just punched your lights out. <laughs> okay. Uh, food for thought. And this is way beyond Shantideva. But I will say it once again. For that really to strike home. Union and summer. That's where the error really strikes the target. Strikes the target. You may soften up, because I don't want to denigrate. People investigate and study Madhyamic Korea. My own lamas have Gisha Rapti, Gisha Taige, and Gisha Kinsetan, and so forth and so on. Years of study of Madhyamic. Were they wasting their time? Of course they did. I never suggested that. In the Nyingma tradition, too, they'll study Majamakamatana and so forth, if not for four years, probably, I don't know, probably even two years, they take Majamakas very seriously. So, does that do nothing to ameliorate, to attenuate, to diminish your mental friction? No, I think it would soften them up, if you're really sincere. Gesherach, I'll leave on this point, and then we'll go to the meditation, but Gesherach is really such a paradigm, this is how a Geshe should turn out, in so many ways. Uh, 
even when he was there, what happened to that was an outstanding meditative, really accomplished. And not a meditative uh, debate, really accomplished things. Quite formidable. But when he was telling me his life story many years later, in the early 70s, he said, when you come off the debating ground, and this was just about a year or two before, I started getting out of the debating ground and doing what he did. He inspired everyone to do that. He, one man, did it. And so I did it for years. And then a lot of them under his guidance. But he said, when out on the debating ground, it's number one, it's highly competitive. There's just no doubt. People win and lose debates. You're there to crush the views of your opponent. Demolish them. Make them a laughingstock. And if you have an audience, it's, you really get a kick out of it when people really laugh. They just... <laughs> so there's definitely a little ego in the process. <laughs> And especially when I was in the monastery, pardon me for going on tangent, but when I was, then I, I got so inspired by Gitarab and the story, life story. Because nobody had ever written anything, as far as I know, on that whole training, that whole education, what it, being, what it means to become a Geshe. That was the first one. So he told me his life story at my request, of course. I got inspired with his holiness and said, Shall I go down to set a monastery? Or Geshe, you know, the new manifestation of Gitarab and so on. Monastery, shall I go down there? And his holiness, knowing full well I was, what, 22, 22, 23 at the time, that if I went down there and entered the, the first class of studying basic Buddhist logic, debate, and so forth, Satrantic view, I'd be debating with 12 year olds. <laughs> that might not work out all that well. <laughs> and so, happily, his holiness himself created a school right at that time that was primarily aimed at young Tibetans who did have already a high school education and who were monks and who really wanted to devote their lives to Dharma. And he said, that's the place we And it's right here, so it's directly under his supervision. So that's where I went. So I spent 14 months there before I took 10 days, 11 hours a day to look at my mind and then went up the mountain. But for those 14 months, it was really an extraordinary education. And I'm ever so glad that I had that. And especially when we kind of got into the flow, you learn, your, you learn the ropes, and after I know, six months, eight months, whatever, then once a month, we had the damcha. And this is where, instead of debating nearly for five hours every night, once a month, we'd start, it was not quite an all-nighter, but we'd start about six o'clock in the evening, and we'd, and we'd be reciting verbatim the Abhisamalankara, all of us together. That's the great treatise on all of the five paths and ten, ten, ten bumis by Maitreya. We'd recite that for a while. I think we went one-third of the text each night. And then, instead of pairing off, which is what we normally do, one-on-one on one or two-on-one, on one, two sitting and then one attacking the position of the other two, uh, then, as the sun was going down, then two, peop- two, two months, three months, two months, two months would have been chosen for the month once a month, two monks would be chosen, and they would be answering questions. They'd be defending their defending a position for the whole night. They sit there, and then one by one, all the other monks in the monastery, about 30 monks, a small monastery, but all the other monks would then come one by one, and all the other monks would have been thinking for the last couple of weeks 
what's the hardest question I can possibly put to these guys? So when I when I present it, I will so humiliate them that everybody will laugh and I will have completely demolished them in debate. So they're going to come up with their best shot. Absolutely. And of course, we don't know what it's going to be. The two answering don't have a clue. All you know is, okay, we're studying Satrantic, or we're studying Buddhist psychology, or we're studying this. You know the general domain, but you have not a clue what any one of those 28, let's say, monks are going to nail you. As it goes on and on, you start at 7 o'clock, we ended at 3 o'clock in the morning. And there's, there might have been a pee break, I don't remember. <laughs> I did sit for that. And so there it is. And one after another they come. And they're bringing out their best heavy artillery. And you got two guys there. And then they do their best to respond and take a position and then defend it. But then if the, the defenders are doing quite well, they're just totally handling it like, you know, like, <laughs> you know, just knock them away like fleas. Then the instructor, the abbot of the monastery, he would come in and he'd say, throw this out. He'd beef it up from the time of the attacker. He'd give them more artillery. He'd give more of a challenge here. Say this. <laughs> and then you hit with more heart from my man who's you know. He was the one with Gishima Taiki, two of my lamas, when they had the big Munlam festival every spring. The, his holiness, or somebody there, I presume his holiness, would appoint or choose the two top debaters anywhere around in the neighborhood to debate in front of his holiness and the whole congregation of all the monks and nuns, about I don't know, three, four, five thousand people. Two would be pairing off. My two teachers, Gishima Taiki and Yen Lofayasu. Shock debate, really smart. So he would be boasting up the attacker side when the defenders were really good. And I don't recall whether he helped out the defenders or not, I can't remember one way or another. But the point what I'm getting at, and it is important, is that at the end of the day, you will have probably done better in some some of the skirmishes than in others. Sometimes you might have gotten demolished, sometimes you might have done really well, but you can come away. I remember skipping home at 3 o'clock in the morning. I, my adrenaline rush was so high that I just... <laughs> it's actually feeling pretty good. Um, but Geshe Rappen's point is what I'm really getting at. And that is, if now that you've been in a debate, maybe you did very well, you're very proud of yourself, you're very happy, and all of that, maybe you're humiliated, either way, either way. If your motivation is to go back to your room and then study those books again so that you can perform better in the next one. You've missed the whole point. You may be a really sharp, turn out to be a very famous debater because you prepared so well. The next time you demolish more, you defend better. Demolish more and defend better. And you may wind up being number one Geshe who just knows how to debate everybody into the dirt. But that's all you did after the debate was just learn how to be a better debater. You missed the whole point. It said the point of the debate was sharpen your own intelligence. It's like two blades, and the blade of the others is their intelligence, and they're coming to help you refine your intelligence, and as you respond, you're there to help them refine their intelligence, their understanding, their insight. This is all for mutual benefit. It's not really so one side wins and the other side loses. It's that everybody wins through sharpening your intelligence, through this very, very high energy exchange, interchange, communication. Geshe said, if you want to know the whole point of that, is when you come off the debating corridor, 
you'll go back to the quietude of your own room and you take it right into meditation. And that's where the arrow starts by me. So, likewise, friends, this is the true teaching of Sunday. The true teaching of Sunday. And that is you study, you learn, you investigate. All for the sake of practice. Everything you debate, everything you study, everything you memorize. All for the sake of practice. Good. So, with that, just had a, a real dive into the deep end of the pool. Shantideva and His Holiness Dalai Lama is our guide. So, we turn to meditation. Such investigation, such activation of conceptual mind, of intelligence, of discernment, they all stir up the mind. Not intrinsically bad to energize them and to activate them. The mind should be serviceable. We wish, when we wish to rest, that should be also our prerogative. So rest your mind now. As usual, let your awareness descend back into the non-conceptual space of the mind. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. you're sitting upright or lying down in the supine position, rest in the infirmary in this first phase, mindfulness of breathing with a full body awareness, emphasis with every out-breath, and relaxing more and more deeply, without losing the clarity with which you can.
let your eyes be open. Even we rest your awareness in the space in front of you, but without focusing on any object, not even on space itself. Do not meditate on anything. Simply be present in the present. With unwavering mindfulness, free of distraction and free of grasp. Now, while withdrawing your awareness, your attention, your interest from all appearances and objects of awareness, the reality of your own subjective awareness may dawn more and more clearly. Immediate awareness and knowing of being conscious rests there in that knowing of being aware. This is what is involved in tasting awareness, knowing awareness, experiencing awareness. Knowing its conventional or relative nature, luminous, cognizant, 
knowing those you know the nature rather than letting the nature of awareness itself. Now venture into Vipassana. Probe into the very nature of that which you have identified. And really now, what is the reference of this word awareness? That which has the attributes of luminosity, that which is cognizant, which becomes restless, still, agitated, dull, which follows after this object and that object, does all of these things. What is the reference of awareness that has these attributes and performs those functions? Many functions, many attributes. What is that one thing? Awareness that performs the functions and has the attributes. Identify awareness and then penetrate right to its nucleus, its intrinsic nature that we grasp onto when we re reify our own awareness. Is it to be found or not? awareness that is separate from all appearances, demarcated, separate from all appearances or objects of awareness, standing on its own, can you find it? Awareness in and of itself.
receive its qualities, you receive its functions. If upon the most careful scrutiny, you cannot find awareness existing in and of itself, Know that absence, that emptiness, of an inherent nature of awareness, separate, intrinsic, existing on its own, from its own side. Rest in that emptiness and sustain the flow of knowing. Turn your attention to the objects of the mind that appear in any of the six domains of experience, objects in the surrounding world, people, places, mental objects. Let your attention alight where it will, come to rest where it will, focus on an object of your choice. And then investigate, bring out the label of that object, 
bring to mind the object. It has a certain set of attributes. Probe right into the nature of that object, whatever it may be. That object that appears to exist really from its own side, really be there. See if you can find that which is really there. Intrinsically bearing its own characteristics, existing from its own side. Investigate until you come to certainty. Is it there or not? Like a bee moving from one flower to the next in a garden. At your leisure, let your attention grow from one object to another. Investigating each one sufficiently. Until there arises an ascertainment, a certain knowing. Is it really there on its own side? Why not? And if not, sustain that flow of knowing of the sheer absence of that phenomenon existing from its own side.
mental gymnasium of Buddhism. You find there are different exercise forms. One type of mental gymnastics of achieving shamatha and then developing vijnanas, maybe mastering those different limitants. Heavy lifting, heavy lifting, samadhi lifting. Now we see also that on the Vipassana side, heavy lifting. But I remember Gyanlasan Gatsu making this comment, quite striking. Flew in the face, this was 1974, that by engaging in this type of exercise, he was talking to monks in the monastery, memorizing scores and scores of pages of material verbatim, five hours a day debating, one, one and a half hours a day of receiving instruction. He said, engaging in this training will make you smarter. It's true. It's true. Use it or lose it. People are naturally very intelligent. And then watch soap operas, hang out watching television, do a really low-demand job. They may really actually lose the intelligence they were born with. And other ones who used to, they built, just pushing the envelope, exercising, refining, challenging, challenging, challenging. Intelligence can get better. So the notion that intelligence is a set is an unintelligent conclusion based on inadequate data. So over the last several decades, I've met quite a few people who believe, report, they've achieved shamatha, they've achieved jhana, one or more, realized emptiness, realized non-self, realized rikpa. One person I heard about that he felt he realized some yoga type. People believe a lot of things. On the whole, I don't think they were deception, and I think that can happen. In the case of somebody actually trying to just deceive you, that can happen. In the cases that I know, I don't think that was the case. I think they're being sincere. They've read something of Buddhism. They have some experience. Here's my experience. There's a description. Oh, I've achieved the first job. Oh, I've realized emptiness. I've realized rape, and so forth. How is, are any of us, not just them, how are any of us determined have you achieved this or that? Because you find something similar in the text. Descriptions of substrate consciousness, frankly, are very similar to descriptions in many respects. To descriptions of rigor. Luminous, blissful, spacious, etc. Descriptions of the substrate sound in some respects a lot again, a lot like emptiness. Shunyata. So might we complain it? It's a very, very helpful pragmatic criteria. And that is, if you realize shamatha, then go back to the text. Go back to, not just the text, as a text is a text. The text reports of people experiencing authentically achieving shamatha, and what were the pragmatic benefits? What afflictions, what disturbances of the mind were attenuated? What positive qualities came forth? What came, when they when they're reporting from their experience, what was alive in meditation? What was alive post-meditation? Go to Tsongkhapa. Go to so many of them, and you can say, boy, it doesn't get much more definitive than that. And then see, okay, you think of Chief Shamata? Great. Can you, and then see, can you sit for four hours in impeccable samadhi effortless? Are your mental conditions strongly attenuated? And so forth and so on. Pragmatic criteria. People thinking they've realized emptiness. That would be wonderful. Good. If you realize emptiness, look at the effects that that authentic realization has on your mental affliction. The arrows are just striking the bullseye one after another. 
your, your, your mental vision of taking a beating here. And moreover, the capacity for compassion and loving kindness going through the roof, let alone realization of rape. All the popularization of Rigpa all over the place. People spouting up, oh, my realism, I'm resting in Rigpa, oh, yeah, I'm going to take a half an hour break and rest in Rigpa for a while. Very cool. You're resting in something an Arhat can't realize in this lifetime. Congratulations. You must really have accomplished that. Or are you sitting there like a marmot? <laughs> you know, check. What's the effect? If you think you realize Rigpa, that's fantastic. I applaud you. What was the demolition that did you mental locations? So there it is. Pragmatic criteria. And then there's the epistemic. And I will linger if we have only a couple of minutes. So much more can be said, but I'm not going to say much more. We're going to move on to the Shiksa Sambachai tomorrow afternoon. William James. Introducing something so revolutionary that it died. And that is, he said, when it comes to scientifically understanding the mind, we should rely upon introspection, first, foremost, and always. And let brain science and behavioral science come in as backup. Because neither of them has any access to mental phenomenon of any kind whatsoever. Behavioral expressions, yes, those are called effects. Neuronal correlates, yes, those are called causes. What is it, what is it that's being caused, and what is it that's producing the effects? Namely, the mind, mental events. They're getting at it only indirectly. But introspection is looking right at the phenomenon itself. This is science. This is this is the whole spirit of science for, for at that time, 300 years. First, foremost, and almost introspection. And then people, quite rightly, you know, they, they do what scientists do well. They criticize it. They say that introspection is subjective. It's strongly subjective, how do you say, prone to subjective bias, to projection, to distortion, to suppression, to kinds of stuff. It's really problematic. That's one of the favorite words in philosophy. It's really problematic. They said, you're right. Introspection is not infallible. You're right. Oh, by the way, it's no more it's no it's no more infallible than any other mode of observation. Cognitive psychologists study perception all of it, but a lot. Lots and lots of studies of visual perception. Very elusive. Number one, the colors seem to be really out there. They're not. Just for starters, it's already illusory. And so auditory illusions, optical illusions, tactile illusions, the illusions that come through hypnosis, and so forth. Oh, wait a minute. Which part of this is not problematic? Data collection. Incredibly sophisticated scientists. Really sophisticated. Getting wrong data when it came to the neutrinos. They just, they perceived wrong. They measured wrong. So William James' point here is, yes, introspection is fallible, but then how do you improve it? And that is you let later introspections monitor, that is, test your early introspections by later ones and see if they withstand scrutiny. And later ones. And then what he didn't have, but now which Buddhism, Hinduism, and other contemplative traditions do have in spades. And Western psychology still doesn't have, frankly, at all any more than folk psychology level, is refined measurement system of introspection. It's shot. It's data culture. But getting better and better and better. Less and less rumination, greater and greater stability, greater and greater vividness, temporal and quality. This is measurement. This is data collection. That's what they didn't have at all and still don't. Some of it is still not part of modern psychology, or let alone neuroscience. 
But he said, but if he'd known that, I think then he could have charged ahead. But he didn't have a clue how to train attention. He knew it should be trained. He knew an education system that taught it would be the education system par excellence. That's a direct quote. Didn't know how to do it. And then he died. And then they buried him under a ton of dogma. Oh, just a ton of dogma. The, ha the radical behavior say we will no longer talk about subjective experience. Mind refers to something that doesn't exist. We'll just study things that are objective, quantifiable, and objective. Back on comfortable terrain. But William James is right. If you have a means of refining introspection and refining more, then you take your earlier observations and you subject it to subsequent scrutiny. Do they still stand up? Do they still stand up? And then, of course, you're not working on your own. Just like mathematicians. Mathematics is an inside job. It's an inside job. If I'm thinking mathematically, and, and Miles is a mathematician, how on earth is he, is he possibly able to judge how well I'm mathematizing? You know, how am how I doing? He's sitting here. How can he tell? He can't. Until I start writing on the blackboard. And then he writes on the blackboard, and now you're expressing, and he said, Alan, right, right there. You got that one wrong. That's why your proof is, is false. Right there. And we call in other mathematicians. If here and I are both highly trained, said, yeah, Miles nailed you. It was right there that you got it wrong. But here, now look at this. Does anybody see a fault with this? And the room is quiet. Now it seems to be a legitimate proof. Until maybe next year, some mathematician comes along and he says, no, look, there was a fault there as well. And so mathematics grows by the subsequent, sometimes validating and sometimes invalidating the prior. General agreement in the late 19th century ether exists. It has to exist. Otherwise, the wave properties of light cannot be explained. Have to happen. They almost all agreed. 20 years later, first in another. Because Einstein finds out a better theory. So, there it is, as for outside, as for inside. And that is when there's, remember one of the criteria, I have to stop quickly, but one of the criteria, okay, something appears, something appears, the effects of black holes, nobody ever sees a black hole by definition, because it sucks all the light. But you see, there are influences in the environment, and by inference you say, and then it's a very sophisticated theory, really sophisticated, the event horizon and all of that. Uh, look at Stephen Hawking's writings on black holes, it's really, really smart. And then we have even things more mysterious, like dark matter and dark energy, about which they know nothing, except that there must be something like that, otherwise the phenomena can't be explained. Well, maybe those will be the right answer, or maybe they'll be like ether, that nobody ever measured, but they thought it had to be there, otherwise you couldn't explain something. Maybe dark matter and energy will turn out to be something that's real. And maybe not. Maybe they'll say, no, you thought that, but that's because you hadn't thought of this. And that'll be something that a physicist comes up with in three years and say, that whole notion of dark matter energy, bogus, never existed, not useful, ridiculous, no basis, false. This is how you explain the same phenomenon. As for outside, so for inside. People who are meditating, going back and forth between the theory and the empirical investigation, you get to Satrantica, some things seem to be irre irrefutably true until you come and blast it apart with Madhyamaka reasoning and deeper penetrating analysis. And then suddenly, earlier assumptions that were universally accepted by your peers are seen to be totally false. But you still retain those elements that were true, as modern physics retains many elements of classical physics. So the point here is that it's an ongoing adventure, and as in science, so in contemplative science. 
and that is science isn't just about knowledge acquisition. It certainly is about that. But how do they get grants? Sooner or later, it would be really cool if they can do something. And they do very, very often. It's technology coming. We have, we have cell phones, we have digital clocks because of quantum mechanics. No quantum mechanics, no digital watches. That's very handy. They're cheap and they're very accurate. And so many other things. Insight comes in and then you have something practical, hedonically beneficial, because that's what science is really all about. Gain knowledge and give us some pragmatic benefit, either protecting us from harm or giving us some benefit. That's why people are still so keen on science, why it gets so much funded, because it helps. And there's this growing body of consensual knowledge. And they keep on refuting each other, but not just out of whimsy, out of a true growth of knowledge. So this is, I think, the, oh, I think it's the greatest adventure. But there's another whole avenue of knowledge that is almost invisible to modernity, and that's contemplative knowledge. We have all these scientists studying the brain effects of this type of meditation, the neuroprolis of that, and the behavioral expressions of this type of meditation, and it's hardly dawned on any of them. Oh gosh, maybe meditation could actually lead to a discovery that you may not be able to get by neuroscience or behavioral psychology. That hasn't come up yet. But it will. Give his holiness a chance. But that's that contemplative scientific observatory in Bangalore. Get it going. And then we will not allow the Eurocentric view to dominate ideologically, silence, gag the contemplative voice when they say we've discovered something. And the things that you can't discover, you haven't discovered. And maybe you can't, because you're just looking at the brain. And we're looking at the phenomenon themselves. So that will be one of the greatest celebrations, I think, in the history of science is seeing these two great ways coming together. Because one is so powerful, Yudamoni, for liberating, purifying, getting to the roots of suffering, and giving true freedom, and fully expanding the potentials of consciousness itself. So spectacularly successful for 2,500 years. That's a pretty good track. And the other one for 400 years, spectacularly successful for understanding the physical, quantitative, and the objective and providing us this tremendous one of technological advances, advances in medicine, transportation, communication, and so on. And seeing that, in fact, there can be a union of these two. That's never happened. Not in recorded history. That's never happened. So science for 400 years, yeah. Buddhism for 2,500 years. This, zero years. Just waiting to want to join the party. I can't teach you science. This is the first step for the contemplative technology. And you're not too old. <laughs> you can understand what I'm saying. You're not too old. And if you can't, ask the person next to you that tell them what I just said that it's time to do. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>